was reading an article the other day by a pastor. Let me grab the clicker. I was reading an article by this guy the other day. His name's Afshin Ziafat. Anybody heard of him? He's a pastor in Dallas. Pastors a church called Providence Church. Great preacher. Um, I was reading an article that he wrote the other day, and, and this was something he said at the very beginning of the article. It really kind of captured my imagination. If you grew up going to church youth camps, you may remember that kid, that kid, <laughs> who would seem to have a spiritual breakthrough every summer, only to go back to his formal way of living soon after. No matter what he did, he failed to make lasting progress. Maybe you were that kid. Maybe you still feel like that kid today. He goes on and um, he takes a look at Hebrews 5. And in Hebrews 5, the writer says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Friends, today I want us to consider the danger of being spiritual babies. People who aren't only not maturing in faith, but those who don't really want to. Those who are content to simply attend church or hear a teaching or listen to a podcast or maybe read a book but yet who never make progress past the point of being a recipient of milk to being the person who actually feeds others. I think that our need to mature spiritually is even more pressing when considering the divided and contentious nature of the times in which we live. I mean, this is a season, a chance for the church to truly shine. Because we are called to be a city on a hill in dark times, in, in, in uncertain times, in chaotic times. That, that we, because of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross and because of the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives, that we could be the ones that others look to to find hope and truth in the midst of confusion. A beacon that the rest of the world can look to and find not only what is true, but can find the nourishing milk of the gospel. And yet, in order for that kind of church to exist, you not only need mature believers standing by, you also need to be distinct from the rest of the world so that you are visible. Did you notice that in our text from Exodus this morning, that that's some of what Moses was saying to God. God, not only hopefully have I found favor in your sight, but, but God, go before us and lead this people and, and lead us to be distinct from the rest of the world so that the rest of the, of the world looks at us as your people. It's in the distinction that we see God's mark. It's in the distinction in being different from everyone else. Because if like how you act and, and what you desire and, and what you run to in times of crisis, if it is no different from the rest of the world, then you are not a city on a hill. If you go to the same things that anybody else, no matter what they believe, would run to, if you desire the th- same things that any non-believer, any pagan, any atheist would run to and desire, if that's the same for you, then what's the distinction Today, as we continue in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we come to Romans chapter 12, which famously is a major turning point 
in sort of the narrative arc of this letter, it's as if Paul has spent the first 11 chapters just diagnosing and revealing and explaining many of the core issues that the church was going through and and sort of giving us a, how did we get to where we are now? And we get to Romans 12 and it's like he goes, okay, now because of all of that, based on all of that, here's the plan. Here's how we live in light of everything that I've said up to this point. Here's how we deal with all of this. So let's read his words together this morning. Would y'all stand with me as I read this? Romans 12. Verses 1 through 9. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So as we think through Paul's words, I want to pull out three truths today um, that I think we are called to hold to. And um, these are God desires all of you. This probably is not a shock to you. Surely you've heard this before. But God doesn't want part of you. We didn't sing, I surrender a little bit. I surrender some. We're saying, I surrender all. God wants all of you. The process of giving God all of you involves intentionally divesting from conformation to the world. The process of giving God all of you involves you pulling out of your investment in the world. And then finally, God has purpose for you in the body. We see all of this in today's text. We said a couple of weeks ago that what God most wants from you is unchanged. What God has wanted from his creation from the beginning to now is the same thing, and that is that we would worship him. And it's easy to say that the problem, though, is that we've been conditioned to think when we hear the word worship that what we're primarily talking about is what we're doing right now. We're talking about gathering in a room with other believers, singing, praying, uh, reading God's word, uh, hearing the gospel proclaimed, those are all wonderful things, but those are just a very small part of what true Christian worship really is all about. Sometimes we think that worshiping God is about going to church on Sunday morning, and yet, just look at verse 1 of what we read. The notion that worship is simply attending a weekly event clearly would have baffled Paul. 
if the basic concept is that God desires all of you. Yeah, well, I go to church on Sundays. I sing, God. I have an experience on Sunday mornings. Yeah, 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 that's great. But God desires all of you. In Paul's view, what Christ has done is such an incredible and like unobtainable gift that giving him anything less than the whole of your life just would be unthinkable. It just doesn't make sense in light of the kind of gift that you've been given. Remember, he's just spent 11 chapters unpacking the fact that we are hopelessly lost in sin. But then God sent his son Jesus as a rescuer. And now we're offered justification and sanctification. We're offered salvation. We're offered righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but this righteousness that comes from Christ. And what we read in Ephesians was he's given this to us as a free gift. We couldn't have earned it. This is not your own doing. And he's done this so that no one can boast. No one can say, yeah, I was good enough. I was moral enough. I was smart enough. I, I, I got it. My eyes and I just happened to, you know, understand it. No, no, no. No one can boast because God is the one who has done this. So he's just spent 11 chapters kind of unpacking all of that for us. And he said this gift is not just for the Jews. No, it's being made available to the whole world. For the first time ever, God is truly revealing himself to the Gentiles. Even Paul considered himself an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul says, that's what's happened. So what do we do in response to a God who has given us everything? We give him everything. Paul says, that's what worship is. That's what worship is. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice in the same way that Jesus presented his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. What does it look like for a person to present his or her body as a living sacrifice? It, look like, it looks like not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now, think back to this first verse. For just a moment. First of all, Paul is appealing. Like, I'm begging you. I beseech you. Like, with everything that's in me, hear what I'm saying. Based on everything I've said up to this point, guys, I'm, I'm like groveling before you. Listen, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you think this is true and right and good, if you find hope here, if this is real, Present your body as a living sacrifice. And, and if you want to worship God, he doesn't want anything less than that. He wants your whole heart, your whole life, your mind, your desires, your wants, your wishes. He wants you to submit and me to submit all of those things before him and go, because of who you are and because of what you've done let me give this over and let me be, let me become transformed. So many of us are living lives of conformity to the world. I think what Paul's basically describing here is what Jesus would call repentance. 
We most often think of repentance in terms of like individual sins. I have these recurring sins or I have these habitual sins and I feel badly about them or I feel shameful about them and I know I need to stop doing them. But the individual sins are really only a symptom. It's, it's what's presenting on the surface. But the question is, what's the underlying issue? What's the real issue? Years ago, I have a cousin who, who suddenly became very sick. Very kind of strange thing. Came out of the blue. He wound up in the hospital. And um, for, for a while there, for several days, like doctors really just didn't know what was going on. He, he had some GI issues and was in some pain, and it was just not clear at all. And, and this was a, uh, he was in his late 20s, early 30s at the time, healthy guy, worked out, very strange, didn't know what was going on. He's in the hospital, they're trying to figure things out, and they realize that his kidneys were failing. Well, you know, a person's kidneys don't just fail randomly, that's very strange. And, and so, I mean, a myriad of tests later, a lot of discomfort, several days later, they discovered that the issue was his thyroid. It was his thyroid. And, and, and I don't know much about the thyroid, but it's this kind of mysterious, is it a gland that, that like controls seemingly like all of these things within your body. And once the actual issue was addressed, the presenting symptoms went away. The symptoms weren't the problem. The problem was something underneath that. And once the problem was identified, then the symptoms went away. And so if you feel plagued by continual or habitual sin, even though you've tried to stop, even though you've made attempts, it could be that maybe you've never really treated the underlying issue. For Paul, the underlying problem that pretty much all of us are dealing with is the sin nature that we were born with. We were born conformed to the world. We were born conformed to the world. We were born desiring the things of this world more than the things of God. But now, because of Christ, Paul says, you have to divest from confirmation to the world. You can't just live in it because it's what feels best or it's what feels most natural to you. You have to intentionally step away from conformation to the world, and you have to instead invest in conformation to the kingdom of God. Leaving one world and turning to a new world. And, and that's a core facet of what we're getting at here. Is, is, it's why I said it's, it's, it's like what Jesus spoke of when he spoke of repentance. Repentance is all about leaving one thing and turning towards another thing. So repentance isn't just, God, help me to stop doing these individual things. It's, it's, God, I have to completely divest from my allegiance over here, and I have to put all of my allegiance in you. That's what real repentance is all about. It's not just stop doing bad things. It's, no, 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 let's treat the underlying issue, which is that we're seeking to be conformed to the world, or I'm seeking to put my devotion and allegiance and affection in some other lesser God. I have to divest from that. I have to pull out of that, and I have to put it into what is real and true. So Paul says, because of Christ, we give him everything. And a core facet of investing in the kingdom of God is allowing him to transform your mind. For Paul, he says, this is your spiritual worship. Sometimes we think when we hear the word spiritual that it's, it's all internal, it's all kind of happening in the heart, it's kind of 
nebulous to us, but Paul's speaking very practically here, and I I don't think we can overstate the practicality of what he's calling us to. Um, Paul's saying, what your mind is set on is going to determine your level of submission to God. What your mind is set on is going to determine your level of submission to God. So, So what are our minds set on? What are the things that you think about often? What are the things that consume your thoughts? What are the things you dwell on? What what do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to bed thinking about? Those things are going to shape who you are spiritually. So what are the things we think about? Let's be real. Money, what we don't have, power, maybe not having power, maybe trying to obtain power, comfort, how to get comfort, how to get more comfort, luxury, success, what we want, what others have, hunger, food, safety, politics, our appearance, sex, security, material possessions, our future, our past, anger, lust, hatred, broken relationships. These are the things that we dwell on. These are the things that our, mind, our minds are drawn towards when we are conformed to the world. For so many of us, the things that consume our thoughts, the things that we dwell on, the things that fill our mind, have nothing to do with the good, perfect, acceptable will of God that Paul's talking about here. And, and I, don't know, I don't know what this means, but we were talking about this this morning. For the, for the first time in our lifetime, and in literally the history of the world, there is this massive mechanism that is leveraged towards capturing and holding your attention, and that is the internet and social media. And, and the thing that's so fascinating about it to me is that that's not even hidden anymore. That's not even a secret anymore. No one's even like trying to say that's not what social media is trying to do. So we have this mechanism that's sole intention and and with billions of dollars behind it is trying to capture our mind. It's trying to capture our thoughts and, and, and monetize our thoughts and monetize our attention. And most of us just go along with it. And just accept that uh, that's how the world works now. And do you see that's, that's just an example of what he's talking about here. Obviously, Paul didn't have social media. But for as long as there has been a world, there has been sin. And there have been things that have been vying for your attention. Because ultimately, it's not just social media, right? Ultimately, and and, and this sounds dramatic, I said it to our team this morning, it sounds dramatic, but literally the forces of evil are leveraged towards obtaining your attention and your focus and your gaze and the thoughts of your heart so that they're turned away from Christ and onto whatever else. It doesn't matter. 
So we shouldn't be surprised when there are these mechanisms in our world that are geared towards that, focused on that, have that as their mission, as their purpose. And, and if we just go, that's just how the world works, that's just what life is, and we make no attempt to divest and reinvest in the kingdom of God, if we make no attempt whatsoever to pull our mind away from those kinds of things and invest in the things of God, then, then what are we doing? Like, I mean, we all know and have heard the statistics of how much time we spend on our phones, how much time we spend on social media, how much time we spend on the internet in general, versus for Christians, how much time is actually spent in the reading of scripture, in prayer, in spiritual practices. I mean, it's, it's just laughable, the disparity between the two. It's laughable for a people who are called to give him everything and not be conformed to the world. So I don't think we can overstate the practicality of what Paul's calling us to. This is not just high, lofty, spiritual stuff. It's very like pragmatic, everyday type stuff. It's, 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 it's a math equation on some level as well. What is your time given to? For many of us, and look, I'm not removed from this, for many of us, we are consumed by worldliness. We're conformed to worldliness. And just going to church, just going to BSF, just reading a book, just listening to a podcast does not change our confirmation to the world. Just attending things and engaging with things does not change our confirmation to the world. We have to act. We have to act in obedience to the call of Christ. We have to repent unless we turn from our mental consumption of lesser things and daily, repeatedly set our minds on the things of God rather than on other things, then nothing will ever change. And we seek to set our minds on the things of God not only because it's what he wants for us, but also because it's what prepares us to live out our calling within the body of Christ. And within the world. We read on verse 4 For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So note that when the church is healthy, when the church is functioning in the way that God's designed it to function, there are a variety of gifts that are coming to the table. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So God's measured out to us through his grace all kinds of different gifts. And when this works the way that he's designed it to work, we're all bringing our stuff to the table. And we're saying, I, I may not have a lot, but here's what he's given me. And here's what I can offer. So put simply, in order for the body to be healthy and functioning in the way it's supposed to function, all the individual parts need to be healthy and functioning. The problem in so many churches, and I don't know that we're removed from this, is that in reality, only a very small part of the body is actually healthy and functioning. You've maybe seen those uh, presidential signs. They look like a presidential like, yard sign, but it just says any functioning adult. And there's a sense in which that's true for the church. It's we, we need people who are truly functioning 
in the way that God's designed us to function, the way that he's called us to function, the way that Jesus died so that we can function. What I've seen over and over again is that a church will take a text like this and they'll look at their pastor and say, well, that's what we hired you for. Right, all this prophecy and exhortation and teaching and contributing and serving and all that. Well, that's, that's why we pay you. That wouldn't have made any sense to Paul. Paul's looking at the church. He's looking at the people. He's going, what has God measured out to you? And are you actually submitting it to him? When we first started down this road of planting a church, something Justin and I strongly believe, still do, was that we had to have a plan for helping people move from conformation to the world to being a healthy, functioning part of the body. And um, another word for that process is discipleship. Becoming more like Christ. Becoming not conformed to the world, but conformed to the image of Christ. Discipleship is all about setting one's mind on Christ. It's about seeking, as a result, to learn him and to emulate him. So we just looked at the example of Jesus and the way that he made disciples and and just came up with a very basic plan. One, we we need life together in gospel-centered community. When you look at Jesus and his disciples, one of the core characteristics of what they had was their relationships with each other. So all of these guys are experiencing life together. Now, for them, I mean, it gets to the point where they are kind of like living together because they're kind of out in the wilderness and they're going from town to town, village to village, but they're living life together in community. So they're processing things together, right? They're holding one another up. They're bearing one another's burdens together. I don't think we can overstate how critical this piece is and how like missing this piece is in the American church, right? We have events called community. Community's not an event. Community is this very organic thing, right? So this is critical. If real discipleship is going to happen, we have to have this. Secondly, biblical teaching is key. So as the disciples are living life in community with each other, they're sitting under the teaching of Christ, right? They're hearing him. They're hearing the word of God through Jesus, the greatest teacher ever. And they're like digesting that, processing that with each other. The third piece, which may seem like a strange piece, but not when you look at the way of Jesus, is is what we call personal coaching. Notice that Jesus, yes, he's teaching these guys. Yes, they're kind of living life together. But there are numerous instances where Jesus is very clearly and very, very intentionally kind of pouring into individual disciples. Whether it's Peter or it's John, we see Jesus pulling up alongside them and teaching them in very specific ways and helping them in very specific ways. And then the last piece is what we call actualization of calling which means that ultimately God has called you to stuff in your life. We saw this a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2.10. You are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So the process of discipleship happens within the context of a gospel-centered community, sitting under biblical teaching, having somebody walking alongside you, pouring into you, um, helping you take steps forward so that you can come to the place where You get off the milk and you start feeding others. I think that's what actualization of calling is all about. It's when you step into what God has for you. And I think based on what Paul's saying today in Romans, that there is a sense in which he's gifted you specifically for whatever that is. Like he's given you something. He's measured something out to you by his grace. 
And so this is what we want everybody to experience. And, and, and it's cyclical. I hope you see that. Hopefully you see that as you get down here, this may have implications for your vocation. It may have implications in your home. It may have implications in your neighborhood. But it also has implications within the church itself. It has implications within Christ. Because when you get to the point where you go, I think I'm ready to start pouring into others rather than just sitting and soaking, then we see the cycle of discipleship happening. This is how Christianity transformed the world, guys. It's not rocket science. Jesus made disciples. They made disciples. They made disciples. And 2,000 plus years later, we're sitting here talking about Jesus. And yet, we've largely lost this very basic model, this very basic biblical model. We feel like the whole point in having a church and planning a church is to do this work. We feel like this is the mission that Jesus has sent us on. This is the great commission. And so if there's a piece of this that you're missing, then we have to like turn our gaze. We have to divest from whatever else our attention is in. And we have to start giving our attention to Christ, learning him, seeking to emulate him, doing that in community. If you've never been a part of our coaching process, jumping into that, experiencing that. And, and our prayer is, man, that we will see people not only coming to know Christ, but we'll see people who already know him truly stepping into what he has for them. Afshin Ziafat says, in the Western church, we too often make the mistake that spiritual maturity comes from obtaining more information. We sign up for Bible studies and theological classes to meet this need. And while those classes may have much to offer, they don't necessarily fix the problem of dull hearing. That's what the writer of Hebrews had said. You guys are hearing, but you don't really hear, right? On their own, they don't move you on to maturity, this is not merely an intellectual or an educational issue. The author of Hebrews says, The mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The issue isn't a lack of knowledge, but a lack of practice. Man, isn't that true? Haven't you seen that? As you've been a part of churches, as you've visited churches, as maybe you've grown up in the church, haven't you seen that the problem isn't that people don't know things about Jesus or don't know things about the Bible or are just completely ignorant to what God wants of us? It's the fact that we don't do it. It's the fact that we don't actually step into it and follow him in it. Friends, if we're seeking to submit the whole of our lives to Christ, then we're talking about a daily endeavor. And I'll leave you with this to consider. From the moment you wake up, what are you ingesting mentally? From the moment you wake up, what are you ingesting mentally? If you were to meet with a nutritionist, um, before prescribing a certain diet or a certain plan of action to you, more than likely a nutritionist is going to do this. They're going to tell you to go home for maybe two weeks and keep a diary of everything you eat. Don't change anything. Just do what you normally do. I want you to keep a record of everything you eat. And then you're going to bring that back to the nutritionist. They're going to start adding that up and go, wow, you eat 40,000 calories every day. And uh, most of them are after 8 p.m. So that's not good. 
So let's put a plan in place to address some of these things, right? How many of you wake up every morning and grab this? Isn't it amazing that 10 years ago, you did not do that? And yet for so many of us, somehow, and I'm not removed from this, somehow this has suddenly become the thing that has captured my attention, not only in the morning, not only in the evenings, but for probably an embarrassing amount of time throughout the day. And yet, for the majority of my life, this didn't even exist. And very easily, my gaze has been diverted. Why? Because everybody else has as well. Who doesn't have one of these? Emmy. Emmy doesn't have one. You better believe it. Not only do I have it, but it, it is like on my person at all times. And, oh no, if I can't find it. Like, panic. What am I going to do? Isn't it amazing how quickly our entire culture can change? How many of you read or watch the news before you do anything in the day having to do with Christ? How many of you are going through email long before a page of Scripture is cracked? How many of you can go days without even considering the Word of God or spending any time in prayer? So my, my challenge to all of us over the next week is literally to keep a record of what you're ingesting mentally. Like, like actually start giving some thought to this. When you wake up in the morning, what am I doing? Right? When you're bored at work during the day, what am I doing? When I'm sitting around at night at home, what am I actually doing? And if all of this is real, if what Paul's saying is true, if Jesus has truly died so that we might find real life and hope in him, so that we might be co-heirs with him, so that we might be adopted into the family of the creator of all things. If all of that is true, then what's it going to take for us to truly give him everything? To turn our gaze fully to him. What you're watching, reading, listening to, what does that look like versus the practice of reading scripture, prayer, spending time with a mentor, a personal coach. I want to leave you with this very simple but powerful statement that rounds out our text today. What if this was your mission statement? What if this is your mantra in everyday life? Let your love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Not just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't just kind of, I abhor it. Hold fast to what is good. If we truly abhorred what is evil, do you think that that would shape the things that we watch on TV? Do you think that would shape the things that we read? Do you think that would shape the things that we go looking for? Things that we try to satisfy? Or if we abhor what is evil... And we look at ourselves, 
do you think it gives us a deeper appreciation for the mercy of Christ and what he's done for us? Let us pray. Jesus, we give you praise and honor. We thank you for your scripture this morning. Father, I pray that this is as challenging to everyone here as it is to me. That it can be so easy and unconscious to get caught up in confirmation to our world. We have such such a need to not stand out or stick out. We need to make sure we're doing what everybody else is doing, that we are okay, that we're not weird or strange or different, and yet, Father, you have clearly called us to be weird, strange, and different. And for some of us, myself included, that's one of the scariest things that we can imagine. But, Father, would you so move us, not just with an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but but at a heart level, like a heart wrenching, heart-rendering understanding of the gospel. Will we be so moved by what Christ has done for us, Father, that we truly desire to give you everything, not to be that kid at camp that hits some kind of spiritual peak or mountaintop, but it's not real. It doesn't last. Help us, Father, to to come to the point where we don't want to just sit and Listen, but Father, we want to put into practice the things that you've given us and taught us so that we might feed others, so that we might make disciples. Help us, Lord. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.